Yeah. Good afternoon, everybody. That uh, if you didn't hear, Father Danny's gone this week, so y'all are stuck with me. So, so say a prayer that we all get through this together, and hopefully we'll all learn a little bit. So, uh, and those of y'all that don't know me, my name is Kirk, and I need all y'all's prayers because I'm in the process right now, training to be a deacon. So, if y'all can pray and pray for me, I'm going to need it. So. Uh, let, let's start tonight in the prayer, okay? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's say the Our Father together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so tonight what we're going to be covering, what we're going to be talking about is the, the liturgy. And so the liturgy that, do y'all know what that means? that the liturgy actually means just public works. So usually when we think about liturgy, we think about what's happening just here in Mass, right? But liturgy is actually anything that we do in public for Christ. And so, so today we're going to be talking about liturgy, and that actually comes from, it's also the sacraments is included in the liturgy. So tonight we're going to be covering just the, the liturgy, and then also... Uh, just the basics of the sacraments, where we get them from, what they're all about. Do we have the authority to have the, the sacraments that we have, or did we make them up, or what? So just some questions uh, that we might have. Okay, so the, the liturgy that we have... Uh, how long have we had this liturgy, do you think? I mean, we've, we've changed it up some. It gets modified a little bit here and there. But how long do you think it's been about like it is now? That I want to I read you all something. And one of the things that actually got me started was, uh, well, well, I'll read this to you, and then we'll talk about it. Okay, so this is something that uh, a guy wrote uh, describing what they do in church. And it says, Afterwards, we remind each other of these things, and the wealthy among us help the needy. We always keep together, and all things we're in were supplied, and we're blessed all through the son, his Son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Ghost. And on that day, so here's where it starts talking about the church service. On that day, called Sunday, all who live in the cities and the countries gather together in one place. We read the memoirs of the apostles and the writing of the prophets. Then, when the reader is ceased, the presbyter verbally instructs and exhorts the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise and praise as we go, as we go before 
And when our prayers is ended, the bread and the wine and the water are brought to the presbyter in the like manner, and he offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability and the ascent, and everybody says amen. Then there is a distribution to each one, the participation of that over which he gave thanks has been given, and those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. Then those who are doing well give what they are willing and what each sees fit. And what is collected is uh, deposited with the presbyter who secures the orphans and the widows and, and those who are sick and then any sojourners that are there. So does that, if we just look at what that is, is that kind of the basic outline of what we do in Mass to start with? How long ago do you think this was written? Have any of y'all ever heard of Justin Martyr? That Justin Martyr, this was written in the year 170. And these things right here are the things that really got me interested in my faith. Because many of y'all know me that I grew up, I was baptized in this church. You know, I was raised the whole time here. But I was just kind of one of those guys that just kind of came to church on Sunday, and then when I walked out the door, I left it, you know. And I really didn't get that involved. And what actually got me thinking about things is when I was teaching out at Merritt, that a real meaning, a really good meaning little uh, Baptist lady come up to me and she goes, you're one of those Catholics? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, you know all y'all are going to hell, right? And, uh, and she, really, she really meant it, you know? And so, and at the time, my faith was not that strong. And so I started, I started doing a lot of reading. And I found these guys like this, that this was written in the year 170 that described what we do at Mass. And we're going to talk a little bit more about these guys just because I think that they're so awesome. Uh, is that, you know, that this guy, Justin Martyr, who he wrote this to was Caesar in the year 170. And do you think his last name was originally Martyr? No. No, he earned that name, right? Uh, because what he did is that he wrote this letter. He actually wrote two letters, the first and second apology, uh, to the Caesar in Rome. And so... And it described our Catholic faith. So many things that we believe, and we're going to talk about the, those a little bit more tonight. But it just really impressed me and everything. So I just kind of think that that's cool. So we look at our, so we look at our liturgy, and so it's not just everything that we do at church. I mean, it is it is everything that we do at church plus more, and it's all like the beautiful music that we have. All of that is considered liturgy, and we don't really uh, think about a lot of things, but there was a lady that actually joined our church last year. If Vicki's listening, she'll know, uh, but, but Vicki told us that, uh, she joined, that she ended up becoming Christian just because she was walking by, she was walking by a church, and uh, she just heard the beautiful singing that was coming out of it. So she decided to go in and check it out. And then whenever she went in and she checked it out, 
that she just enjoyed the music so much and it just kind of renewed her faith and everything. And then she actually started reading books and then she left that church and became Catholic because she's like, the more I read, the more I was just, this was the right spot to be. So that's, that's kind of what I'm hoping to y'all. Uh, I hope that like a spark happens and because it's just really cool when you start when you start like reading this stuff and everything. Okay, so so we got the liturgy is is this can the can the priest change the liturgy if he wants? No, no that it's it's pretty much set that the that the liturgy goes like this way that they kind of have it in different countries, they kind of change it a, a little bit for the different countries and the different cultures. But in America, that it, the liturgy is pretty much set. And it's the same way, it's the same way on all the sacraments. Like whenever the, like whenever the priest is like baptizing somebody, okay, that you have to be, the priest has a certain way that he has to do. He has to, do all the, the ceremony back there that he has a book that just lays it all out. And you have to be baptized in the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's the reason why, and that's actually in the Bible, and we'll, we'll read that in a little bit, but if you're not baptized, like if you came from another church and you came here, like there's certain churches that only baptize you in the name of Christ. So if you're in that church, if you join the Catholic Church, you have to be rebaptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because you didn't receive the right form. So we have the form is is the way is the way that they do it. It's the procedure that they go through, and then we have the matter, which is like the water. So all the sacraments have their their form and their matter. As they go through that. Any questions on any of that so far? Okay. One of the things that I I think is kind of neat is uh, if we go, uh, we're just going to go a little bit. This is Matthew chapter 16, and then... Uh, verse 16, and y'all have all heard this uh, before, that this won't be anything new to you, that this is whenever Jesus is uh, there and he's asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? You know, and then we're going to look at some of the responses. And, and so, so I'm just going to start reading here at at 16, so when he's asking everybody, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly father. So if we just look at just that verse right there, so did Peter come up with Jesus was the Messiah on his own? No, it says that, that it was revealed to him by the Heavenly Father that God himself, God the Father, told him that this is the Messiah, right? So, uh, 
So why is that important? Because what do we think about the Pope today? Peter was the first Pope, right? So whenever we talk about the Pope being infallible, that that means whenever he's talking normally or whatever, that he can mess up. But whenever he's speaking to lead the whole church, that we still believe this today, that God speaks through the Pope like that whenever he's making an infinitive decision on something and he's gathered with the bishops and all this, if he's declaring a doctrine for the church that everybody must believe, that it's still the same. You know, that just like, Jesus, like Peter didn't come up with this on his own, then he did. And if we read on, we'll see that it carries it. So, so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld will not prevail against it. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So that's kind of where one of the spots that we get that they actually had the ability, you know, to, to, uh, to be the Pope and to actually take, you know, the doctrines out of the Bible and actually see, you know, how we have confession today, you know, and when new things pop up, you know, how they can deal with them, and we still know that God's guiding them, that it says right here that he's going to be with us to the end of the age, right? So he's still guiding the church, you know, from now to the end of the age. And so that's kind of where the, the church gets its authority. Because if we just look at where the church gets its authority and stuff, because like whenever, whenever Christ died, did he just go out and hand people the Bible? <laughs> no, where, where did the Bible come from? The apostles had to write it, right? So the, the apostles wrote it. And do you all know like what year was actually decided on that these are the books that are going in the Bible? That they actually met on several, several different councils. Uh, they had a big one in like 382 that Pope Damasus called uh, the meeting for them to assemble the books, and that's whenever he had St. Jerome go interpret the Bible uh, because it was in Greek and they were all speaking Latin then, so they switched it. He had them go, uh, go uh, get the transcripts and write it all in Latin. He went and found all the Jewish writings and translated them to Latin. But that wasn't until the year 392, so the year 392, so almost 400 years after Jesus, that they actually sat down and decided what books were going to go in the Bible. So it's pretty important that they had the authority to be able to do that. And so that's also a reason why now, like, if people brings up, like, the Gospel of Mary or something like that, you know, they're like, well, no, they decided that was heretical a long time ago, you know, that the, whenever the bishops met and everything back there, and we can look, and it was actually the bishops, you know, that met, uh, with the Pope, and they're like, okay, these are the books that are going in the Bible, that this, this other one, like the Gospel of Mary or something, that that might have came around later, and somebody else just put Mary's name on there so that people would think it was credible and believe what they believed and all this stuff. So 
that's just, I know I'm kind of getting off the topic of the liturgy, but it's kind of where we kind of get all this stuff from. And so the church has this great, wonderful history. And so we have the Bible that is the inspired word of God that we believe, you know, come from where, from God. It's inspired, and we can believe it's inspired because of our church, the magisterium, is what I'm just talking about, how we actually got that. And then the other thing is the traditions, where the, they wrote down the traditions that was in here. But then also our Catholic faith is so great on the way that we interpret stuff. Because one of the great things that I found that I loved in all this, whenever I started founding, was the, the fathers of the church. And there's this guy named... Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, and I don't know if y'all have ever heard of his story or not, but it's just really cool that, well, it wasn't too cool for him, but anyway, it's cool for us to read, but uh, he was a bishop of Antioch, that that's where Peter started off being uh, the bishop, and then he left, and then Ignatius was there, and he was actually trained by the apostle John, and he knew Paul. And back then, they considered him a heathen because, and they considered him an atheist because he wouldn't worship all the gods of the Romans, right? So if it's not raining, who are you going to blame? It's the guy not worshiping the rain god, right? So what they do is, is that they go and they get Ignatius, who is the bishop of Antioch, trained by John, and... They, uh, they take him, and they're going to make an example of this guy. So they parade him all around from Antioch all the way to Rome. But whenever he's there, that they actually uh, let him write letters. So the whole time that he's going, and they're parading him around, he's writing these letters. And we still have seven of the letters that he wrote today. And this was the guy that was trained by the Apostle John. And so this is kind of how we get our interpretation of stuff, that we have like the Bible studies. But then who else could tell us what the, what the gospel of John means better than the guy that got John trained, right? So if John's saying, some, or if John's saying something and uh, Ignatius of Antioch says, well, you know, this is what he meant, well, then it would be pretty good that that's what he actually meant. And so that's, that's kind of the things that I, th- that I found was, was really neat. So I'm going to read a few of the things. And like the main point of the, the liturgy, what, what's the main focus of the liturgy? It all centers around the Eucharist, right? Okay, so we have, we, have the, we have the everything else going on, and it centers around the Eucharist. And so, as Catholics, that we believe that the Eucharist that we have is the true body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And... 
like the other, a lot of the, and a lot of the other, some of the other churches do too, the Orthodox, they believe that, all, all the ancient churches pretty much believe that, but then, like, if you go to one of the, one of the new churches that pop up now, or the Baptist church, or something like that, this, this is kind of one of the things where I think that they're missing, you know, that, so if we look at the gospel, since we're talking, we're talking about this. We're just going to start. I'll start off. I told you it's going to be about the sacrament. So we'll talk about uh, the sacrament of the Eucharist uh, first. Okay. If you remember that in John chapter 6, that it says that, that Jesus is there talking to him. And it's after he had just multiplied the, the loaves to like 5,000 loaves. So he's showing that he can take the bread and he can multiply it. And then also he says that I am the bread of life, right? And he, and he says that, that you must eat the bread of life to have life within you, to have eternal life in chapter 6. And it says that a lot of people then, what did they do as soon as he said that you must, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood? What? Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah they, they thought he was cannibal and they ran away, right? And so a lot of the people that were following him actually ran away and they didn't follow him. And so that's one of the cool things, though, that we think, okay, like we believe that now, but did they believe that back then? Well, this Justin Martyr guy that I told you that wrote a letter to the... Uh, to Caesar in the year like 160. We're not really sure. We know what emperor killed him. So we know that he was killed in between like 160 and 180 by this emperor. But uh, he wrote this letter in one of the, it's really long. And, uh, but one of the parts that he writes in there, because he's talking about the Catholic faith and he's saying you accuses of all these things. And he goes, you accuses of being cannibals. And then he goes on to describe you know, that this is the bread, you know, that we take the bread and we bless it, and it becomes the true body of Christ. And so that Justin Martyr, that he actually is one of them that uh, says that. Uh, right, right here is what he actually said. So he has that section, and then in another section that Justin Martyr the one that wrote it to the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, somewhere between 160 and 180. He said, The food we call the Eucharist, which no one is allowed to partake of except for the one that believes in the things that we teach are true, and we receive the washing of forgiveness of sins for rebirth, and who lives as Christ handed down, for we do not receive these things as common bread and common drink, but as Jesus Christ, our Savior, incarnate by God's word, took flesh and blood for our salvation, so that we might be taught that the food consecrated by the word of the prayer which comes from him, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation, and this is... It is the flesh and blood of, of that incarnate Jesus. 
So there's a lot of things that, if you look there, that we kill, still kind of do today. Because, uh, and I know it's kind of like awkward and stuff when we have funerals today, but can everybody come up and take communion? No. What about in the year 160? Could everybody come up and take, one, take communion? No, he just, he just says, which no one is allowed to partake of except for the one that believes the things that we teach are true. So it's been that way since the year 160 or, or before, you know. And then it says, how to receive the washing for the forgiveness of sins. What do you think that is? It's our baptism, right? And so, and then another thing that goes right along with it in, uh, just so that it's just not all the church fathers, that we have all the gospels that talks about the Last Supper, right? And so we're real familiar with those. But then also in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that this is just another deal. It says, For I received from the Lord what I was passed on to you, the Lord Jesus on the night, uh, on the night he was betrayed, when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until I, until he comes. That sounds real familiar, right? Y'all hear that? We hear it every Sunday. Okay. And this is the kicker. So the verse right after that, this is uh, verse 27. So whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty, uh, guilty of sinning against the body and blood of our Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the, eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink just judgment upon themselves. So, it just, it breaks my heart to hear how many Catholics they say nowadays no longer believe in the true presence, that they no longer believe that that's the really body and blood of Christ up there. But if you read this verse right here, it says that if you, if you take Holy Communion in an unworthy fashion, you drink judgment upon yourself, right? If it's just a symbol, how would you be drinking judgment upon yourself, you know? So that's kind of my way of thinking about it. And so, it, that it has to really be the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, and then, so I'm going to switch back to Ignatius of Antioch, the bishop that they took and they paraded all over to take back to Rome. Okay, and he, one of his seven letters that he wrote, this is one of them that he actually wrote. It says that he was talking about this uh, group of people. Or it says, what Ignatius was saying about the group makes it clear that the Christians he was addressing 
believed in the true presence. Here's what he wrote. They uh, hold aloof the Eucharist from the services of prayer because they refuse to admit that, that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sins and in which his, in his goodness and the Father raised. So he's saying that back in the early days, like I said, he was just writing letters to people. Like he wrote a letter to like Polycarp, which was another bishop back in that day, and you can read things about him and all that stuff. But he said that certain people refused to admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, way back then. But this was the guy that was trained by the Apostle John, right? So if anybody knew what he meant, it should be the Apostle John that wrote the book of John who said, you know, that you must eat, that this is my, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. So we know that that's what John wrote, and this was the guy that John trained. So if we look there, then we can see that this is, that it's actually the, it's actually that. Okay. Any questions about the Eucharist before we we move on? Okay. Okay, so let's just start off from the beginning. What's the first sacrament that you receive? Baptism, right? Okay, so why do we, so why do we baptize people and why do we get baptized? Yeah, because of original sin, and, and Jesus told us to, right? Okay, so, and then, so in the... Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus commands the people. He's like, Who, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And in the book of Matthew, it says, Go out to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so, we were commanded to, and that's right, you know, because we have original sin, and also to get rid of all the sins that we've committed up to the time that we're baptized. But so that brings in a good thing like, why do we baptize babies? Because, I mean, if you think about it, they don't have any personal sin of their own, right? Okay. But this is the way that it made sense to me that a, a guy explained to me. Okay, if we think about it, that Adam and Eve... When they were originally created in the garden, they were in the original state of grace, right? So they had this grace that they started with. Okay. Whenever they sinned, they fell from grace, right? So whenever they sinned, they fell out of the state of grace. So they no longer had the state of grace. 
So if you, do, if you don't have something, can you pass it on to somebody else? No. So they actually lost their state of grace. Okay. So the reason why we baptize babies is because we actually, when they get baptized, that it restores that state of grace that we were supposed to have. You know, so we were supposed to, you know, if we'd have been originally created, we would have had that state of grace and been in that state of grace. But because of the original sin, then we lost that state of grace. And so when we baptize babies, then they receive uh, the state of grace. Or they, or they received grace. And then every sacrament that we have adds more grace to it. So whenever we're talking about this, whenever... Uh, so say that you're baptized or your kid is baptized and then you find out that the priest, he's kind of a turd, right? And so he wasn't in, he wasn't in the state of grace whenever he baptized your baby. Does, what's that mean? Is your baby still baptized? Right. Okay, so... Even though the the sin or the the priest or whoever performs a baptism, he could be like one of the sorriest people that there is, but the sacrament does not be affected. Okay. So, and a cool thing that I found was uh, St. Francis of Assisi. You know, he was a really holy man. And so, you know how things go that... uh, so people come and reported to St. Francis, and they're like, there's this priest over here, and he's no good. He's doing all these horrible things. Go straighten him out. You know, that's what they went and told St. Francis, just kind of like people would do to us today. You know, they're like, we're always pretty good to point at the other people. You know, that guy's not right. You need to go straighten him out. Okay, people haven't changed. We've been that way forever. Uh, so they go and they tell St. Francis, this guy right here is no good. And St. Francis goes, when I go see him, I'm going to kiss his hands because those are the hands that bring me Jesus in the Eucharist. And he tells him, if all the saints from heaven come down right now, he's like, I would kiss the priest's hands before I looked at the saints over there because they don't bring me Jesus in the Eucharist, and his hands do. And so, since the beginning, it's been even that this, if the priest is not worthy, that doesn't affect him because he's received the seal. He's received the, the, the seal of holy orders, right? And so, once he gets that seal on him, just like us, when we're baptized, we get a seal. When we're confirmed, we get a seal. When you get holy orders, you get a seal that it's an indelible mark upon that person that can never, ever be taken away. And so even if they're no good, that Jesus, because it's really Jesus working through them to baptize you or to make the, (coughs) or for the Eucharist, the bread to become the Eucharist, it's actually Jesus working through that. So no matter how bad the, the priest is, it doesn't matter. Okay, what about, what about if you're baptized or confirmed or 
uh, going to confession. What about your state? Does that matter? If you're going to, uh, are you going to get it? If you go to confession and you're not sorry for your sins, are you forgiven? No, right? So it it does matter. <clears throat> Whenever we're confirmed and baptized, that uh, how much we get out of it is how open we are to it. And you can, I'm, I'm thinking it was St. Teresa of Avila. I could be thinking of the wrong saint. Uh, but she was saying, that whenever God pours out blessings, that how big a cup do you want to have? Because God will fill up your cup. And so you can come through him with the thimble. You know, like a lot of the high school kids, when I was confirmed, probably I probably wasn't set up right to receive all the graces that I could. You know, I might have showed up with the symbol, you know, and that's how much God filled it up. But if I'd have been there with the 55-gallon barrel... He would have filled it up, right? So how our heart is open to receive God is how much we can receive from God, how open we are. And that's kind of one of the reasons why Father's always, about every week since he's been here, he's talked about go to confession, go to confession, go to confession, if you haven't noticed, right? (laughs) So, but what that does is that that opens up our heart where we can receive more. Okay, so baptism, uh, so we talked about before that uh, how the priest is, and then the priest doesn't matter, the infant, it doesn't, that in Catholics, is that whenever you are baptized, that that's just the beginning, that your state of learning doesn't end whenever you're baptized, right? That that's just the start, and we're supposed to learn and get better all of our lives. But whenever we're baptized, we're actually made into a child of God. That we're all created as like creatures of God, but whenever we're baptized, we actually become children of God. And living here in America, that doesn't seem like that's too oddball a thing, you know? We kind of look at everybody and say, oh, everybody's a child of God, right? Okay, if you go and you tell an atheist that they're a child of God, what are they going to do? They're going to laugh at you, right? They're going to say there's not really, not really God. I'm not, I'm not a child of God. What if you tell a Muslim that they're a child of God? Okay, and this is one way that we're different from the Muslim faith, is that if you say that you're a child of a God to a Muslim, that's blasphemy. But there's been a lot of our uh, a lot of our apologists and stuff that's talked to Muslims, and the Muslims like stormed out on them because they say that you know they say God our Father, and the Muslims will say God is not your father. And so this is a Christian thing. Whenever God, whenever Jesus came, it's a really big deal that we're child that we're children of God. And so we actually become. When we're baptized, we become a child of God. So, and God is the king of the universe, right? And so we're like the children's of God. So we're like the little princesses and prince, if you want to think, that we're actually baptized 
a king or a queen because we're a child of God. Okay, we're also baptized. We're actually, how they say it is, we're baptized priest, prophet, and king. Okay, how are we baptized a priest? Like whenever, like we have Father up here that does his services, but he offers sacrifice for all of us, right? When he's up here. But we're actually uh, become priests as well, and we're, we're called to at, offer sacrifice. Like how many of y'all have heard your whole life and said it, offer it up, right? So we can offer up our sacrifices that we do every day. Like we can fast and say like, you know, Sarah's not feeling good. Let's, let's fast this day and offer that suffering for Sarah, you know, and this kind of stuff. So we're actually called to be a priest like that, a little priest for our families and friends or whoever that we can and we can offer sufferings up for these people. So it's not a priest like the priestly priesthood up here, but we're still called to be a priest in that way. And we're also called to be prophets. And that's just to go and preach the gospel to people. And it can be with words, or it can be by our actions, right? Because... It also breaks my heart that I know a I know a guy and he's he like grew up in Louisiana though and he's like oh you're a Catholic and I'm like yeah and he goes yeah he goes I grew up with those people they don't believe nothing you know I've seen the way they act and <laughs> and it's true you know on on a lot of us you know and so we're we're preaching every time we're out in public you know if we're there complaining and causing trouble and always griping about everything and stuff. I mean, people see that, and they're like, yeah, I don't want any part of that, you know? But if we're, so how we live, you know, and how we live and how we, and then we need to share the gospel. So that's what we're called for. We're called to be a priest, prophet, and a king in baptism. Okay, so we got that. The next one is tied in with it because whenever you're, if you're older, we get confirmation at the same time that they're baptized, right? If you're joining RCIA or whatever, when you get baptized, you get confirmed at the same time. Okay. But now we like split it where we have like baptism when you're little and confirmation whenever you're older so did we just make that up or what i mean how did we how did we get to that spot you know where we're like baptizing like the adults get baptized and confirmed the same day but babies get confirmed when they're older and a lot of other churches you know uh, uh don't really do the the confirmation okay so if you're ever wondering why we do that i got it right here Okay, so in the Acts of the Apostles, it says, When the apostles uh, were in Jerusalem and heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, that they sent... I don't have all... Oh, here it is. Okay. When, 
So when the apostles were in Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. They sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that were there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Peter and John placed hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So that's where we get whenever people get confirmed now we usually have the bishop up here right and then he goes and he lays hands on him and he seals them seals them with the the chrism so whenever you do that and what what's one of the reasons why we put the oil on them you know whenever whenever we confirm them that we confirm them with the oil or chrism Y'all can correct me. I'm, I know I mess it up, but oil or chrism, whatever it is that we put them with. But whenever they anointed somebody in the Old Testament, what were they doing? Like they went and anointed uh, David in the, the Old Testament. They anointed Saul. They anointed uh, all these people. But whenever they anointed them, what they were doing is they were sending them on, an, sending them on a mission. They were, they were sealing them. So whenever we get that, that you get the seal on you that can never be taken away. But then also you're sent on a mission. And the mission is to spread the word of God. And so that's part of the reason we do that. Okay. And then uh, about confession... So we're going back to reconciliation. And I don't know about y'all, but this is one of my biggest questions that I get from our Protestant brothers and sisters is, why do y'all confess your sins to a priest? I just confess my sins to God. So why Catholics, why do we go and confess our sins to the priests? Okay, but here is... Uh, the reason why and this is the gospel of John and this is uh, verses 21 or verse 20 and following it says so and this is after Jesus died and then he came back and he was rose from the dead and he presented himself to the apostles so and then he walks in the door and Jesus said to them, Peace to you. As my Father has sent me, I also send you. And, where, and when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if they are retained, if you re, and if you retain the sins, then they are retained. So he gave the apostles the ability right here at the end of the Gospel of John, the ability to sin, to forgive sins or to hold people's sins back against them. Okay, and we have, by the laying on of hands, if you can read in like the first couple of chapters of Acts, it talks about uh, 
some things that are cool that we know that we talk about apostolic succession, that we can trace all of our priests back to the original apostles. And a lot of people say, uh, we just had the 12 apostles and they, they died off. Y'all no longer have the power to do that. But one of the first things in the Acts of the Apostles, the first chapter or two in the Acts of Apostles, Peter stands up and what do they do? He's like, well, Judas is no longer with us. We got to find a replacement for him, right? So they draw, so they, so they cast lots and they choose these guys and they, uh, they take a replacement for Judas. And then it also talks about the deacons that they take and they lay their hands on them. So Jesus, Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on the apostles and then they went and they laid their hands on the deacon Stephen that we know that they did that and they also laid their hands on anybody that became a priest after that. So, so we know that that's been passed on from our priest, from Jesus originally breathing on the priest or on the apostles down to our priest today that they have the power to forgive sins. And so to me, yeah, I mean, you can... And we are supposed to, whenever we sin, we're supposed to say right then, God, I'm sorry for what I did, you know, and we're actually supposed to sit down every night. You can make an act of contrition every night where you just sit down and you go through your day and you're like, God, I failed here. Help me tomorrow, you know. And so we can do that, but I don't know about y'all, but it's so much better if we know that the priest has the power to forgive your sins and you go sit back there in that little room and you say, God, I messed up. And here's what I did. And the priest goes, you are forgiven. And right there it says in the Bible that when he says that, it's done. You know, that you are forgiven. And I know lots of times that evil thoughts you know, come back in our mind and we got, a lot of us get haunted by something that we did that was bad in the past. And we sit there and we dwell on that and we're like, you know, I messed, I messed up and, you know, I did this. And we, we feel this pressure like we're not really forgiven, but we are and that we're forgiven when we, the priest says those words of absolution. And what that actually is, is that's kind of the devil whispering in the back of our ears, trying to keep us to turn the other way. Because if he can keep us focused on our bad stuff that we did and we're forgiven of, then we're not really going out and doing what God wants us to do. And so uh, Father Larry Richards wrote a book, and he talks about that. And he's like, yeah, whenever the devil's whispering in your ear, anytime that you have your past sins coming and haunting you, that's not from God, that's from the devil. And what you do then is that you, every time a thought like that comes in your mind, then you pray for somebody else. And it's like, yeah, well, they really need prayer, so I'm going to pray for them. And what's the last thing the devil wants you to do? Pray for somebody else, right? And so whenever you get like those recurring sins coming to haunt you or whatever, if you pray for somebody else, they tend not to come back as often. You know? So it's kind of a, kind of a neat deal there. Uh, the last thing, because uh, we're kind of running out of time, is 
the anointing of the sick. And I never realized how important this was until, like, Amy's dad, uh, he's, that Amy grew up Baptist and her parents are still Baptist, you know. And then her dad is pretty bad. And he had a lot of health issues and stuff. And he was in the hospital for like two weeks there. And he was just trapped there. And I'm like, I really wish that we could send him anointing of the sick. But that's one of the many blessings that we have in our church. You know, that a lot of churches don't have. And that comes straight from the Bible. That if you look, and it's James chapter 5. 14 through 16, and it just says, If anyone among you is sick, let them call the presbyter of the church, and he will pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Do what? Yeah, well, I mean, that uh, the anointing of the sick, I just wish that the faith that they had believed in this, you know, and I think they kind of do because it's kind of weird because you can go at like little stores now and they sell anointing oil. I don't understand because all of our oil comes blessed by the bishop, (laughs) you know, and who blesses their oil? I don't really know. You know, but this this anointing of the sick, though, is such a powerful deal. And I mean, if it's nothing else, it just makes you feel so much better. And I've just seen it like in my own life, like with my my uncle Clifford, who had been away from the Catholic Church for like 40 years, whenever he passed away, that he was there and he was all shaken, that he lost where he couldn't talk anymore there at the end. And he was real nervous and everything, and he knew it was the end. And he'd, he'd left the, the Catholic church and had gone to another church, but it was mainly because he had married a lady that was Protestant. And there at the end, her kids are like, well, you know, he was Catholic. I bet that he wants the anointing of the sick, and that he was all nervous and everything like that. And Father Philip went in and anointed him and gave him the anointing of the sick. And when they did, he calmed down. You know, because he knew that if you had the anointing of the sick, then your sins are forgiven. And so that's just pretty cool. So... I know that we didn't get through all the sacraments, but hopefully, hopefully this wasn't too bad without Father Danny here tonight. So uh, he should be back next week. So, all right, let's let's end in a prayer. Okay, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's say the Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, and those of y'all that are in RCIA,
that we can show you where the Hail Mary is in the Bible. If you read the first couple of chapters of Luke out loud, you said the Hail Mary. So, <laughs> so uh, thanks a lot, and it's been about an hour. If y'all got any questions, let me know. I'll see what I can find out. You bet.